Now, we began this series, as I say, a few weeks ago. And when we did that, we saw the 12 apostles are divided into three groups of four. And the first group we talked about is a group that is most prominent. It's comprised of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And within that group, Jesus Christ actually had an inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to him. Uh, Those three disciples saw more than any other disciple did, had a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ than anybody else had. Now, we looked at Simon Peter already. Uh, Next week, we're going to focus on John. We saw Andrew, who was part of that uh, big group. Uh, The other apostle who is a part of this inner circle is the Apostle James. Probably James is the one we know the most least about. Whenever he's mentioned in the Gospels, he's always mentioned along with Peter and John, never mentioned by himself. In fact, the only time he is mentioned by himself is in the book of Acts. And we see him rise as a leader of the church, also given a record of his death as he is martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about James, although he is mentioned less than any of the two others in that inner circle, it would seem from just a human perspective, he would become the leader of the group, most logical person to become that leader. Probably the older of the two brothers between him and John, why he's also mentioned first when they're listing in Scripture. We also assume that the family John and James came from was a prominent family because they're referred to oftentimes as the sons of Zebedee. And the implication there is that those reading would have heard of Zebedee and know this man as a, as a, a person of some importance, some prominence. Whether it was his fishing business or his family connections, it seems that James came from a family uh, that was well-known in that society and admired by them, had a certain amount of influence in the society as well. Now, for all those reasons, it would seem reasonable that he would have a leadership role among the apostles and would gain prominence in that group. We do see him attaining some prominence as we look at the list of the apostles in the Gospels. Oftentimes, James is listed after Peter. So it's Peter and then James and then the others, as though in some sense he was the second in command. He also gained prominence in a very sad respect. He is the first apostle to be killed for his faith. The first one died for the cause of Jesus Christ. Uh, Being part of the the Lord's inner circle also gave him prominence among the uh, disciples as he, along with Peter and John, was permitted to see things and experience things that no other apostle and certainly no other person had ever seen and were permitted to see. Uh, They were there when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. They were there when Jesus Christ was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was among four apostles who was given a private audience with the Lord, permitted to ask questions of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. James was there the night Jesus Christ prayed for his God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. So James was witness to Christ's power and Christ's glory and Christ's wisdom and Christ's sovereignty and Christ's agony. If there is ever a man who had a full picture of who Jesus Christ was and what he is capable of, it's the Apostle James. And certainly the exposure that he had to those events and his opportunity to experience Jesus Christ firsthand must have strengthened his faith and equipped him to do the work that he later did for the church and for the cause of Christ. Now, I want to stop there because there's a point here I want to make that I don't want any of us to miss. The point is this. The best way to experience our Lord is firsthand. The best way to experience our Lord is firsthand. Now, don't misunderstand me as I say that. I love hearing the testimonies of other believers. I love it as other believers tell what God has done for them and what he's doing in their lives. I praise God for our praise time on Thursday evenings as we hear people talk about the wonderful things God is doing for them, has done for them, how he's working in them and through them and for them. I enjoy that. I like reading the biographies of Christians who have come from the past and they relate how God has did what God has done in their work, in their lives as they participate in the call God placed upon them and watch God move through them to fulfill that call. 
I think those things encourage the body of Christ and edify the body of Christ and push us to do more for him. But at the same time, at the same time, those stories and those uh, testimonies can never be a substitute for God working in my life personally. We can never live off the testimonies of others and expect all to learn all that God has for us to learn just by the experiences of other people. For me to learn Jesus Christ, I must experience him for myself. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul told of all that he had been through, all that he was going through since his conversion to Jesus Christ. And then he showed how all those things helped him to know Jesus Christ in a more personal way. What that says to me is this. If I'm going to know Jesus Christ, I must go through situations personally, and I must watch as God's power and God's wisdom is demonstrated to me in those situations. You see, folks, what I need in order to mature my faith and be prepared for the work God has for me to do, I need personal victories, personal victories, personal victories. Hearing of the victories of other people is wonderful, but they never take the place of the victories in Jesus Christ that I experience for myself. And that brings me to something that we've talked about many, many times before. I know the flesh fights this, but it can't be talked about too much in this day because in this day, comfort is king. Everybody wants a life of ease. Everybody wants a life of convenience. And that has creeped into the church as well. If I want to experience Jesus Christ for myself, if I need to experience Jesus Christ for myself, if I need to see personal victories in my life, then I must put myself in situations where God can do something in my life that only he could have done. Only he could do it. And that means taking risks. That means sticking our necks out. That means allowing God to do things in my life, whatever he must do to reveal his power and his sovereignty and his grace to me. Now, the majority of us don't like to hear that because we don't like taking risks. We don't like sticking our necks out. We don't like being placed in the situations where we're not in control or have very little control. Uh, we want to play it safe. We want to be comfortable. We want life to be smooth and predictable. We don't want anything coming along that's going to disrupt our plans. We don't want any events coming in that's going to push us into the unknown where we don't know what's coming next. And I'm going to tell you something. I will never see and we will never see the power of God if we live our lives that way. If I choose to live safe, I may have a good life, but I'm not going to see the power of God. I may be safe, but I won't see him work like he wants to work. To see God's power, folks, there must come a time in our lives where we throw caution to the wind and we step out by faith and we put ourselves into situations that only God can work through or get us out of. And I do that intentionally. I put myself in that place. For me, that's one of the main reasons we started this work so many years ago. Uh, there was no human reason for, reason for me to leave where I was, was to do what, I did, what we did here. I had a ministry. God was blessing that ministry. I could have stayed as long as I wanted to where I was and been satisfied. But the desire of my heart at that time was for God to put me in a place where I could do, see him do something that only he could do and nobody else could. And so I left the safety of where I was. I put myself in a place where he could show himself strong. And I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't trade the experiences of the almost last 12 years of my life for anything in this world. <laughs> you may get sick of hearing this. That's the main reason why we're pursuing this other church building. Folks, I'll say it to you a thousand times. It's not about the building. <laughs> it's an opportunity to see God work. And it's an opportunity to see God do something, whatever that is, that only he could do. And if we want that to happen, we've got to put ourselves in that place where he can make that happen. 
Whatever God does with this whole situation, when it's all said and done, we're going to know that he did it. Because we're going to stay out of the way and just let him do what he's going to do. And when God does something, I'm going to tell you something. When God does something, it is never routine and it's never ordinary. When God does something, he makes sure you know it. Now, he may not put neon lights above it, but he might as well. Because when he gets done, you're going to know God did something. Whatever it is he does, doesn't matter what he does, just so he does it. And just so we allow him to do it. If I want to see God work, I've got to place myself where God is working. I must make myself available to whatever it is he wants to do. And no matter what the pain, and no matter what the discomfort, and no matter what the risk involved, God will reveal himself to us when we are willing to make ourselves available to whatever he wants to do. Whatever that is. Wherever that is, he wants to do it. And if we choose to take the safe route, as I say, we will be safe. But we will never personally experience the magnitude of our God and will never get the full picture of what he's able to do. Now, you're in Mark chapter 3. Look at verse 17. The Bible gives us a, big, a nickname for James and John both. Focus on James this morning, focus on John next week. But he calls them Boanerges. And that means, as it says there, the th- sons of thunder. Now, what that tells us is that both James and John must have been men of great passion, and that passion spilled over into the work that they did for the Lord. James was passionate and fervent in his desire to serve Jesus Christ. And that passion is revealed in his zeal to do whatever it was God called him to do. Now, it's possible also that that label, the sons of thunder, might not have been intended only as a compliment. It's also very possible the Lord gave them that name to identify their tendency to allow their passion, their zeal, to get out of hand. To say things and do things in the heat of the moment that may not be the best things to say or the best things to do. And in a minute, we're going to look at two examples of that from the life of James to show us that possibility. But I want to focus, first of all, before we do that, on this whole idea of having a zeal for the Lord's work. If you look through Scripture... And if you look at great Christians of the past, what you're going to find is God has always used people who had a passion for the work, a passion for the work. God uses people whose emotions are completely focused on what God has called them to do and on what God is doing. For example, in the book of Second Kings, don't turn there, but you have a man there by the name of Jehu. God called Jehu to wipe up the sin and the corruption that had been a part of the kings of that nation for many, many years. If you read the story, you can't help but be impacted by the fervor and the determination that Jehu had as he went through that nation and killed every person who somehow was connected to the evil of those kings and their wickedness. He was completely undeterred by any resistance to what he was called to do. We see that same characteristic in the life of David. David had a passion for doing God's work. Except for his sin with Bathsheba and his attempts to cover that sin afterwards, uh, God's will, he followed God's will with a steadfast determination. In fact, in Psalm 119, verse 139, David says, My zeal hath consumed me. In Psalm 69, verse 9, he says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He was completely consumed by his zeal for serving God. His zeal became the overriding factor and characteristic of his life. And God calls David a man after his own heart. Interesting. And we understand that statement as we read of the Lord's response to those who were selling at the temple. As he became so righteously angry over the defilement of that temple that he overthrew those tables and whipped those until they finally left the area. You'll see the same zeal in Elijah and in Nehemiah and in John the Baptist. 
And whenever, whenever we see that zeal in Scripture, what I find interesting is whenever that is demonstrated, the focus of that zeal, listen to me, is always directed against sin. That's where the zeal is always focused in opposition to sin. It is directed against the people and the organizations and the movements that take the path that it is in opposition to God's work and to God's plan. The zeal to do God's work comes when God's servants see things going on around them in this world that are in direct defiance to the work God wants to do and the standards God has established. That's when the zeal should show itself. I believe James's zeal was the result of him observing the work of Jesus Christ firsthand. He saw the position that Jesus Christ took. He was aware of the standard that Jesus Christ set and of the intensity of the Lord as he served the Father in the work he was called to do. And when James saw resistance to that work, when he saw people continue to choose to go their own way instead of going the Lord's way and continue to live in their sinful ways, even though Jesus Christ provided a better way, I think that consumed him. I, that's when the thunder showed up. That thunder in his soul came out in response to all that he saw. So with all that said, and with the understanding of those who God has used, I think it's going to be a good idea to ask ourselves this question. You answer this to yourself, not out loud. Here's the question. Do you have a zeal to do God's work? Do you have a passion to do whatever it is God wants you to do? Whatever that is, with the unqualified part of that, I don't know what it is, but God, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. Do you have that kind of zeal? Do you have that kind of passion? Do you want to do whatever God's called you to? Let me ask you this. Do you have a passion to respond against sin when you see it? Or have you become so used to it that instead of resisting sin, we ignore it and maybe even include it into our lives and include it into our walk? What I see going on with believers is they've adjusted to sin. They've kind of mellowed to it. Uh, sin's no longer exceedingly sinful like it used to be. They sort of take in a, a, a dim eye to it and just kind of let it be what it's going to be. Well, that's just what the world does. Well, that is what the world does, folks. That doesn't mean you don't stand against it. <laughs> we still stand against it. And I think sometimes we've adjusted to that sin to the point where we just kind of let it pass and say nothing at all about it. And what happens with many believers, I'm afraid, is they drop their standards instead of holding their standards. Let me ask you this. Do you have a passion, as these young people you saw here a minute ago giving this money, do you have a passion to lead souls to Jesus Christ? Do you have a passion to see those people you know who are lost? Do you have a passion to see them come to the Savior? Is that your goal? Is that your passion? Is that what pulls on your heart? Do you have an overwhelming desire to pull sinners out of the fire and release them from the chains of sin that they are captured by? Or do we see lost people around us and not even notice them. Go on living as though nothing at all is wrong. Folks, listen to me. There are people dying around you this morning. They may be living physically. They're dying spiritually. There are some folks who are on the life support of, of death spiritually. And they're walking around you every day, all the time. Do you have a passion for, to win those folks to Jesus Christ? We need to ask ourselves, what do I have a passion for? Uh, football season is coming. It's here. And there are so many who have a passion for that game. You'll watch them on TV. You'll watch those crowds in that game. They are passionate about their team. I wish we could get some believers to get one-tenth of the passion those folks have for the cause of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sometimes we lose our passion. We lose our emotion. Nothing stirs our hearts. We just kind of settle in. Does what stir your heart this morning, the things of the Lord and his standards and his work, or is it the things of the world and this life that you have a passion over? 
Are we so used to sin that we're no longer stirred by it anymore when we see God's work flaunted and God's standards rejected and God's word minimized? Listen to me, please. God uses men and women of passion. God uses men and women who have a zeal for Jesus Christ. Whatever that looks like, however God calls you to do it. God uses people of passion. God uses men and women who can't see anything but his work and his will and who will react against anything that interferes or mocks what God has said and what God wants them to do. And if we're going to do God's work, God's work must become our passion. It must become the first thing you think about. It must become the emotion that drives you. Nothing can be more important than seeing God's work done. God has always used, and I believe God will always use those who have a zeal for his work, whose zeal for the doing the work of the Lord eats them up and consumes them. And nothing less than that will suffice. Now, having said all that, I want to put a qualifier to it this morning, and that's where James comes in. Because having a zeal is necessary to do the work of the Lord. It's a necessary ingredient for doing God's work. However, that zeal must be tempered. That zeal must be under the control and the leadership of the Spirit of God. Unbridled zeal and misdirected zeal can be as big a problem as having no zeal at all. I'll read you some scripture from Romans chapter 10. Paul says this to uh, his nation of Israel in verse 1, Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Praise God. But, he says, not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He says there, these Jews have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but that zeal is misplaced. And as a result, they are doing the exact opposite of the work that God called them to do. Philippians 3, verse 5, Paul says, speaking of himself, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Paul says, I had great zeal, and in my zeal I persecuted the church. (laughs) Misplaced zeal. Zeal under the wrong category. Zeal put to the wrong place. His zeal was used to condemn and kill Christians. What we see in that is this, folks, if my zeal is misdirected, if my zeal is misplaced, my zeal could be dangerous and cruel and deadly. I have known believers over the past who have had a great zeal to do the Lord's work. But because that zeal went unchecked, they left piles of rubble all along the way. (laughs) They did God's work, but there was path of rubble all the way through it. And they believed all the time they were doing that, they were doing the work of the Lord. Their zeal would take them in the wrong direction. It would cause them to harm people that they were serving with. And oftentimes the work would go undone because their zeal would take them to thing, to thing, to thing, to thing. And nothing ever got accomplished. Nothing ever got finished. Great emotion, great zeal, but unproductive because the work was left behind in the process. That's who I think James was. I'm going to hopefully make my point this morning as you look at some scripture. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I think there are two occasions where uh, James' zeal got the best of him. And as a result, he didn't get the work done like God wanted him to get it done. Luke chapter 9. When you get there, look at verse 51. 
It says there, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, speaking of Jesus Christ, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers, messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus Christ is heading toward Jerusalem for the final Passover. He knows as soon he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified. And he chose to take the route to Jerusalem that passed through Samaria. Now, most Jews taking that journey would have gone several miles out of their way to avoid going through Samaria. Samaria was considered by the Jews to be a land full of pagans and foreigners. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Uh, to the Jews, the land and the people of Samaria were considered unclean, and that's why the Jews would avoid passing through it. And the Samaritans hated the Jews' religion and despised worship at Jerusalem. So when Jesus Christ came through that area, set to attend a Jewish feast in Jerusalem, those Samaritans showed him no respect whatsoever. And James was with Jesus Christ as he passed through that land. He saw the contempt that they showed him. And so James, again, a man full of passion, a man full of zeal, he says, Lord, why don't we call fire down like Elijah did and destroy these unclean people? I mean, James didn't like him anyway, so what a great deal. They offend Jesus Christ. Let's just kill him. <laughs> Now, what James is referring to is an event that occurred in 2 Kings chapter 1. In that situation, the king of Israel was angry at Elijah and sent men down to take him back to where the king was so he could answer to the king. Well, the men showed up and announced their intentions, and Elijah called fire down and destroyed the entire band. So the king sends a second group. Elijah does the same thing to them. Now, this king apparently was a slow learner. He sends a third group. That third group shows up. They don't want to be the next barbecue. And so they come humbly on their faces, begging Elijah not to kill them. And Elijah had mercy on them and didn't have them fried like he did the other two groups. All of that happened in Samaria, in the same region where Jesus Christ was and where James and John were. And James, knowing that story, I'm sure, and watching what happened at that time, he decided, you know what? If it was good enough to happen once, it's good enough to happen again. <laughs> Let's just see that thing replayed all over. And Jesus Christ rebukes him for that request. Now, a couple reasons why Jesus Christ rebuked him. First of all, notice the arrogance of these two disciples. They didn't have the power to call fire down from heaven. They couldn't do that if their life depended on it. They were assuming power they didn't have. And that's one of the problems with unbridled zeal. A person begins to think that it is their work, it's their effort that's going to make everything happen. They believe it's all about them. Passion without understanding ascribes the glory to the wrong place. Passion without understanding ascribes the glory to the wrong place. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. You never want to steal his glory. Be very, very careful about that. Don't even take that step because he defends his glory. He protects his glory. And so these fellows are going to call fire down as though they could do it and all the glory would go to them. That's one of the problems with unbridled zeal. Second, uh, the request that they uh, spoke out shows they misunderstood the Lord's mission altogether. Jesus Christ didn't come down to call fire out of heaven. He came to bring forgiveness and healing and restoration. Here's what happens with unbridled zeal. Misdirected zeal can also affect your message. 
You'll get confused as to why you're here. We begin to proclaim things that aren't at all in line with the message of Jesus Christ and of his word. I don't know about you. I'm sure this is not true of you. I'm going to tell you it's true of me. When emotion takes over, I can say things and do things that are completely opposite of what God wants me to say and do. Because the emotion begins to talk and I lose my sense of reason and I say some of the stupidest things in those moments. (laughs) And whenever that happens, the message and my presentation of the message can actually do more harm than good. So I want to be clear about this, folks. The zeal is not the issue. We need zeal and we need passion. Jane's passion for ministry and his desire to protect the Savior and defend him, that was not the problem. The problem was that zeal was misdirected. And so I'll say it again. God wants you passionate. God wants you focused. God wants you intense on the work he has for you to do. I wish we had more of that. I wish we had people just slobbering to do God's work. I wish that were the case. I wish that zeal was evident every moment that we were together. It isn't always the case. We need that more than ever. As this world gets worse and worse, as it gets darker and darker, as sin becomes more pronounced, we are only going to do God's work when we have a zeal to stand against those things. We need that zeal, folks. We need it. That's not the issue. I think there are times we try to be so proper and so appropriate, we get this whole thing going on of this political correctness in our brains, and our passion for God's work becomes completely hidden in the process. Folks, controlled passion is the key. Controlled passion. Have passion. Guided by God. Led by His Spirit. That will accomplish work that He has for you to do. Work you could never do on your own. But if it is not under the control of the Spirit of God, it will overstep its bounds. It will ascribe glory where it doesn't belong. It will confuse the message that I'm to bring to this world. That kind of passion actually will prevent people from seeing Jesus Christ in me and in my world. Now go to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 20, I believe we have the second example of this James's misdirected zeal. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at this again next week with, uh, when we look at uh, the Apostle John. But we want to see John, uh, James as he reacts in this situation. Matthew chapter 20, begin reading in verse 20. Speaking again of Jesus Christ, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. So here comes James and John and their mom, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? This is mom talking now. She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. He saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. So here's James and John, and they're seeking to be the ones to sit at the right hand and the left hand when Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom. They want to sit next to him. And both here and in the record we find in Mark chapter 10, we find that James and John put their mom up to asking. (laughs) They send mom up front as the agent and talk to Jesus Christ first. Mom, go talk to Jesus and ask him this question. (laughs) They understood that someday Jesus Christ was going to be seated on a throne of glory. And they simply wanted the privilege of being seated on those thrones beside him when that occurred. And what we see here is this. James apparently wanted some reward for his zeal in serving God. 
He followed Jesus Christ from the very beginning. He had been there when others had turned away. He continued to serve when others had not. And so it seemed right to him, and his passion spoke in such a way that he said, I should be rewarded for this. I should get some sort of a, a recognition for what I'm doing for Jesus Christ. And what better reward, what better recognition than to be seated with Jesus Christ next to his throne when he sets up his kingdom. Here's the other problem with misdirected zeal. It can cause us to lose our focus and put the emphasis on the wrong things. That's made clear to us in the response Jesus Christ gave. Look at it again in verse 22. He says, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, the disciples may not have understood the question, but we know exactly what Jesus Christ was asking them because in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, that cup is referred to as Christ's death. So we understand that Jesus Christ is asking them if they're willing to pay the price to get the glory they're requesting. Here's the question he's asking them. Are you willing to surrender everything and give up everything? Are you willing to surrender even your life for the cause of the work that you're called to do? Look at verse 25. But Jesus called unto him and said, Ye know, not, ye know that the prince of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. For whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this had to be whiplash for these disciples. They say, we want to sit on your throne next to you when you come into that kingdom. And Jesus Christ says, I want you to be a servant. <laughs> what a strange turn of events. We want to be seated next to you in glory. Jesus Christ says, I want you to be a servant. I want you not to be ministered to. I want you to minister. He begins to talk to them, not about being honored, but about making themselves subservient to all those around them. You see, in his zeal, James sought a crown of glory, but Jesus Christ promised him a cup of suffering. In his zeal, James asked for power. Jesus Christ commissions him to be a servant. In his zeal, James sought a throne of honor. Jesus promises him the death of a martyr. You see, folks, if we're not careful, our emotions can get in the way of our priorities. And pretty soon, we begin to say and do things that we shouldn't be saying and doing. As believers, God has not... This might be a shock. I better go over here and say this. This may shock you. God has not called you to an easy life. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when you trusted Jesus Christ, wherever that was, you signed up for difficulty. You signed up for a life that was not going to be easy. And if somebody told you differently, I'm sorry about that. I'm telling you the truth from the Word of God. God didn't call you to an easy life. I'm afraid sometimes it gets into our head, and we know it shouldn't, but it gets into our head that if we serve God faithfully, if we make him a priority, if we're passionate about sharing our faith, life is going to go easier as a result. I'm going to tell you something. The exact opposite is true. <laughs> the more you stand for him, the more difficulty you're going to get. We somehow believe if I stand for Jesus Christ and proclaim his message faithfully, I won't have to deal with all the problems other people deal with. All can go well and life will be sweet. Now, here's the truth based upon the experience of James. God's will means we put ourselves down to get God's work done. Doing God's work means I serve others instead of being served myself. 
Being God's minister means I surrender things in this life so God can accomplish his work through me. And sometimes in our passion, in our zeal, we may think because of all we're doing to serve him, life is going to go smoothly and it'll be nothing but honor and blessing and praise. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Those things are promised to you. They're just not promised here. (laughs) You have to wait till over there to get those things. The joy and the satisfaction of the Christian life is not about what you can get here to serve him. The joy and the satisfaction of the Christian life, listen to me, is that you and I are being used by the creator of the universe. That should be enough for you. (laughs) Should be enough for me as well. We are doing a work that is designed by God himself. And the blessing of that work is not about what we receive personally. It's about what others receive because of us allowing God to do his work through us. And if God's work ever becomes what we can gain from it at that point, we have made ourselves unusable. And there are many out there today, turn the TV on, you'll see them all over the place, who are doing God's work for the gain of it. They've made themselves unusable. They may stay on TV. They may have a following. They're not doing God's work. And I'm not going to hedge on that one bit. At that moment, when we begin to worry about the gain and the glory for ourselves, we have removed ourselves from being the presence of Jesus Christ in our world. They will see us. They won't see him. At that point, we've lost the sight of being ministers. Our zeal has focused us on the glory instead of on the honor being used. And God will find somebody else to do the work. Why should I serve Jesus Christ? Matt's done a great, great series on that at 930. Why should I serve Jesus Christ? I should have a zeal for serving Jesus Christ because eternal decisions are made for Jesus Christ as God uses us. That should be enough. And someday I anticipate receiving crowns for the work that I've done, and I can take those crowns and cast them to the feet of the one who deserves them, Jesus Christ. Fourteen years after this event, James became the first martyr of the church. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, if you would. Go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, look at verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. We find that James in the book of Acts had a complete turnaround. Praise God for that. His zeal became controlled by the Spirit of God. He became the man that Jesus Christ wanted him to be as he spent time with the Lord and saw how that worked. James became a man of of harnessed zeal. His desire to serve was under control, and because of that, he became the leader of the church. He became that one who guided the church through its infancy and promoted the growth of the church. We might think that was Peter. That was not Peter. That was James. James did that. James had learned under the training of the Lord. James had seen the problem that zeal had uh, if it was unguided by the Spirit of God, unguided by the right motive. He saw the problems it would create if it was not under the control of God's Spirit. And so James took those qualities and learned to use those qualities as an asset to his ministry as he placed those qualities under the control of the Spirit of God and surrendered all those to his use. 
and the combination of his zeal and those qualities and God's leadership made him the most feared man in that society. Listen to me. Herod said, i got to stop this church. This church is going crazy. It's getting big. It's getting bigger and bigger. And the influence is growing. And it's going against me now. I've got to stop this thing. How do I stop this church? You know what he says? I need to kill James. That'll do it. That guy, if I just kill him, that'll stop the movement. Now, he was wrong. But James had such a reputation. And James did the work in such a way that when Herod thought about stopping the church, he said, let me kill him. I'll kill him. If somebody in our government wanted to stop the church, would your name pop up as the one to go after first? You say, I don't want that notoriety. I understand that. But theoretically speaking, if they're looking to stop the church, do they say, you know what I can do? I've got to kill Sabaka. Or I've got to kill, put your name in there. James had that kind of reputation. That zeal he had became under the control of the Spirit of God, and he became so feared that when they were going to stop the growth of the church, James was the first man that they went after. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. James was an ordinary man, ordinary guy, just like you and me, an ordinary fisherman. And he had flaws, and he could be misguided, and he could be self-focused. Even as he sought to serve the Lord, those things got in the way. You know what I like about James? James was willing to learn. James was willing to learn. He was willing to watch Jesus Christ and listen to Jesus Christ. And when he got those rebukes, he didn't pass them off. He took them in. Obviously, because in the book of Acts, we see what the result of that was. God addressed those flaws and God tempered that zeal and God taught him the true cost of discipleship. And through all that, James became usable in the work of the Lord. I told you last week I'd be thrilled if we had a church full of Andrews. I would be equally thrilled if we had a church full of James. (laughs) Completely satisfied if we had a group of people just like James. You know what we need in the church today, folks? Well, many things. (laughs) One of the things we need in the church today, not just this church, I speak of the church at large. We need a group of people who are simply willing to learn from Jesus Christ who realize they don't know it all, they don't have all the equipment available, they don't have all the skills needed, they just need to be able to hear God speak and learn from that and do the work the way he wants them to. I'm going to tell you, if we had a group of people like that just in this church, we'd split this place over for Jesus Christ. I mean that. I'm not just, that's not preacher talk. That's the truth. We need people who have a passion for the Lord's work, and that passion is tempered by the understanding of the cost that it truly takes to serve Jesus Christ. You have a zeal this morning for the Lord? Have you surrendered that zeal to the cause of Jesus Christ and allowed the Holy Spirit to take control of that? Have you allowed God to focus that zeal in the right place so that you can use that zeal to achieve the right purpose? Are you willing to pay whatever cost you must pay to accomplish the work of the Lord? If you are, you are exactly the person God has called to do his work. And James shows us that. James is our inspiration for that. Uncontrolled zeal, leader of the church. That can be you and I this morning if we simply surrender our passion and our zeal to the control of the Savior. Heads bowed.